Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. I had a sort of three or four ideals in mind when I was writing this. So like the first was for the lay person, I wanted to show the lay person the, the breadth and the width and the largesse of this musical collective. I say it all the time in interviews, it is the longest running, largest discographical music collective of all time, of, of popular music. And um, most lay people don't know that. They, they think of Parliament Funkadelic they're thinking about two or three years of output. They're thinking about 75 through 78, maybe. And that's it. Um, and even the diehard fans, I wanted to show them the largesse of this thing. There, uh, there's a large out, uh, um, group of fans, cross-section of fans who don't know about everything George has done since Atomic Dog, for instance. Um, I remember meeting a fan in Nashville who only knew George from when he had the process. He's like, oh, George Clinton, does he still have that process? I was like, wow, that's so wild. So like <laughs> people have, even the rappers who immortalize and memorialize George, a lot of them are thinking about one tiny aspect of maybe one section of one song from this man's storied career. And they trademark that as that's George. And that's it. That's George. Or that's P-Funk. You know? And so that was the first idea. The second one was, of course, as a band member, to provide justice to my fellow band members who had been miscredited, uncredited, mislabeled, wrongly, wrongly placed. And, you know, even to the point where it happened to me a bunch of times in, in on live releases and things where they made these European imports of live albums that I was on, and they just arbitrarily used a rider from six years before, where not only I'm wrong, but everybody's name is wrong because the band changes that much, you know? So that was my second sort of idea was to right the wrongs for, for my fellow band members. And then the third one was to at least put to rest a good portion of the controversy because as i've said before you know you can find a bunch of different facebook groups where people are still arguing on who is this i play bass on let's play house or whatever it could be anything and i want to put some of that stuff to bed at least the stuff that i feel 
I can say, you know, with, with much confidence based on legitimate primary sources and multitude of, 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 of correct answers from, from different people. No, it's this. Now we can move on <laughs> to the, you know, to the next controversy. So, and, and, you know, there are people who, um, there are people who, uh, um, denied interview, didn't want to do an interview there, but there were very few. There was like maybe three, three people who, so I had to work around that and find family members, other people who were at those sessions, their band members from those periods. Uh, I was going to talk to most of those people anyway, but in some cases I had to get really creative. And um, there's only a couple of albums where, where the, the, the famous question mark had to be employed on a horn section here or a vocalist there. Um, there's a couple of albums, and I'm just going to call them out. There's a couple of Mutiny albums from 95 that, <coughs> excuse me, that were so obscure and hard to track down. Even though I had interviewed multiple Mutiny members from different periods, you know, 70s period, 80s period, 90s period, despite having talked to them for hours, still wasn't able to ascertain some information. So there's like three albums that Mutiny did in 95 where it's contentious. Whatever is written down is even contentious and most of it is question marks, you know. Um, but that happened very rarely. You know, there was, there was only a couple of cases where that kind of thing happened. And... And um, the fourth idea, the last and maybe the most important reason that I was deciding to write this book was, I remember when I actually first started typing it, my, my actual uh, ideology surrounding it beyond everything else was, we're losing more and more of us all the time. And, and not to sound de depressing or anything like that, but we're just, it's history, you know? I'm a historian. This stuff is important to me, even if I wasn't a member of this band. This is a important, major, major piece of African-American musical cultural history from the African-American diaspora. This is popular music history, American music history. This cross this goes across all over, you know, world history, all kinds of stuff. And every day, week, month, year, we are losing this knowledge. We are losing it, losing it, losing it from the way to play it to the way to document it to the knowledge of who it actually even was. And um, as someone who studied history and someone who comes from a culture where where historical revisionism has been placed among, uh, upon my people by, you know, the victors or the perpetrators, I didn't want to see that happen to this as well and myself being a member of it and a part of it i felt like i had some kind of duty and ability to right some wrongs to put some pen to paper and kind of make this official and authorized even if there are mistakes there's bound to be mistakes but to make the most accurate authoritative version of the discography and the history of the personnel that i could make for future generations, not just for the band, not just for the fans, 
but for the posterity of music as we know it a thousand years down the line and every day man man thank you and every day i remember saying to myself while i'm typing i'm like what am i doing what am i doing this is crazy um but i just chipped away at it chipped away at it every day and eventually it started looking more and more complete and let me tell you there were some rabbit holes i went it there's some deep deep dives the i was using a kind of unorthodox system of writing it i was writing it on uh google documents i wasn't even using word so i didn't even really even have an accurate <laughs> count of pages <clears throat> and when i at one point the publishers and the copy editors i had said something to them like oh i know it's a big book you know my original manuscript was um 810 pages or something and then the copy editor guy said, no, it wasn't. He's like, dude, your manuscript is 1,300 pages. This thing is 1,300 pages. Now, they've made it. It's going to be a pretty big volume. And they've columnized it so that it's in two columns going down to, to sort of get as much information on each page. So now it's down to 500 pages, but 505 pages of a, a really large book, like a coffee table book, if you will. And, um, and so I really went down, like I, you know, at first I was just going to do Parliament and Funkadelic. I really was at, at first. I was like, yeah, it'll be this, like this little, whatever, it's just Parliament and Funkadelic. And I was like, well, I got to include Bootsy's Rubber Band. Oh, well, I got to do George's solo stuff. Well, Peep on Golf Stars, that's an extension of that. Well, the Brides, you got to parallel, you can't, can't do just the bride. And it just, it went on and on and on <laughs> to the point where I did every spinoff, every solo project. If you're a member of the band, you've got a solo project, at least a good portion of your discography is in here. And then every hip-hop album that George or Bootsy or Bernie guested on, every album they guested on, uh, stuff like The Temptations where Eddie and Billy played on tracks, or like Chili Peppers that George produced, or and but even deeper than that, just going way, way deep. And then... To the point where I don't know where to stop at a certain point. And, you know, riding long, long drives across the country with George. And he's just sitting there looking at me like this. And I'm looking back at him like, what? And he goes, did you get Harriet Roberts, Only the Lonely, Virgin Records, 1987? I'm like, no, what is that? And then I have to go and add it in. Or I'd be sitting with Clip and he'll be like, did you include Etienne de Creasy? I was like, oh, no, I need to add him. Oh, man. Or or even myself just sitting there. Oh, shit, I forgot the Brecker brothers. I got to play the Brecker brothers or or um, Freak Bass. Oh, I forgot to put Freak Bass. I got to get Freak Bass in there. So it is like everything, everything. And there were certain points where I did have to sort of cut off, but it is very all-encompassing. If it has some kind of connection to Parliament Funkadelic, personnel wise from paul schaefer to stevie salas to it's just an on and on and on it's in there from the very earliest singles all the way to stuff that was put out in 2023 and of course there are albums in 2023 that didn't make it because there's so much stuff just coming out constantly that yeah there's stuff that didn't make it in that last chapter and people can see even without getting the book there's like a you can see the chapter list and how everything's broken down. But uh, 
I had to um, I had to find some like ways to break, you know, break it up, broke it up in decades. And, you know, I had an agent in the early process of getting the books. I have a good buddy, Nick Groff. Nick Groff is a, a, a guy I went to school with and he be- went on to become the most famous of the ghost hunter dudes. He started the show Ghost Adventures on the Travel Channel where they lock themselves in those houses with the ghosts and things. You know, you know what I'm talking about? So he went on to become famous in some whole other thing that's got nothing to do with me. But he got published real early on with an autobiography. So he was able to hook me up with some people, like agents and people early on. And they, they, they did two things. One thing that was good and then one thing that I was like, eh. The thing that they helped me with was they taught me how to write a proposal, a good proposal for publishers. And the proposal took almost as long as writing as typing the book did. I mean, it was like a 50 page. Oh goodness. Like every kind of tedious thing you can think of these questions. Um, what are other books similar to yours without by other bands and how did they sell? And when did they come? Like all kinds of crazy stuff. And that was vastly important. But the, but the thing that they tried to make me do that I wasn't going for was they wanted a couple of different agents wanted me to, break the book up into two volumes, which I was vehemently against. And they wanted me to alphabetize the book, which I was also vehemently against. The reasons are thus. Two volumes denies the largesse that I'm trying to convey here. I'm trying to show people that this is bigger than Zappa. It's bigger than Sinatra. It's big. You know what I'm saying? This is huge, huge, huge. And obviously, yes, it takes a lot of moving parts. But I wanted to show people this is this is this massive thing. If it looks like a giant tome or a or a or a good news Bible, then so be it. But I want it to to convey that. And then the alpha alphabetization part presented a problem to me because to me, it's already a reference book. So it already has a level of clinical clinicality clinicalness to it okay it's already nerdy we don't need to make it cold and alphabetize it i mean that's just cold it's cold you know now it has no rhyme or reason it's just here it all is here you go i wanted it to be chronological so people could see the progression and the growth more context yeah yes yes and when i bring this i've been doing uh, college lectures, college tours, and we're going to be doing a bunch of honorariums at colleges all over the country uh, with myself, members of Secret Army who are obviously in PFUNK, as well as George at some of these. And when I, whenever I describe it, I do the sort of lecture type thing, but then I also do a photo, a photographic chronology, and more importantly, an audio chronology. So you can hear that progression from your poor Willie through that was my girl through good old music to super stupid and biological speculation into Alice in my fantasies into chocolate city and on and on. And you can see the, the organic chronological progression of this thing. Cause it makes so much more of a difference. And people be like, wow, he was there for every major progression in music 
from Frankie Lyman and the teenagers to Kendrick Lamar and beyond, you know? And it's just the, the width and the breadth and the largeness of that is just, it's almost incomprehensible. And that's why I wanted it to be like that. I want it to be incomprehensible. Somebody wrote uh, in Guitar Player Magazine, I had a, a beloved issue of Guitar Player Magazine from the 90s when they interviewed all the guitar players in the band. I'm and the, yeah. yeah, okay, I'm sure. And the journalist wrote in the first sentence, he said, compiling a thumbnail history of P-Funk, I'm paraphrasing, but compiling a thumbnail history of P-Funk <clears throat> is somewhat akin to writing a history of, say, Hinduism, which is like a 6,000-year-old religion that's grown organically over the ages. That is a perfect analogy because it is bigger, larger than life, and bigger than most people, even musicologists, know it to be. Why? Because there is no one volume that sits you down and says, look at this. And, and I think that it's, was it's, This makes me think it's like the roots of the Amazon. Yeah. Nice. And, and I, I wanted to convey that in a single volume, not, alpha, not a cold alphabetical way and not broken up. You know, because one of the agents was like, oh, yeah, it's got you can charge. You can have the Funkadelic be on A through M and then Parliament will be in the N through Z. So everybody has to buy both. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I want it all together. It's important to me for it to be one thing. And um, well, I'm glad you fought for that. Yeah, thank you. And then and and then the last major challenge was just finding a, a publisher. And it was one of those crazy things I wrote to every publishing house. I got a big book from a friend of all the publishers, you know, or he, he said, you got to buy this book you know, and list all the publishers. So any of them that dealt with anything, musical reference books, uh, African-American music, funk music, anything like that, I wrote to them. I got denial letter after denial letter after denial letter. While we think your book is interesting, it's too academic or while we think your book is interesting it's not academic enough or it was always too one thing for this and not this much for something else much like p-funk has been so like i felt very much in this pigeonholed sort of the p-funk of p-funk and uh and finally it's one of those who do you know who you know you know this guy who knows this guy that's sort of how it happened i did an interview with the great folks at funkatopia and, you know, they're based down in Atlanta and they were good friends with this great author, Dwayne Tudal, who yeah, wrote a couple Prince of, books. Yeah, yeah, he wrote a couple of amazing books about Prince. And uh, Dwayne, I actually invited Dwayne to one of the recent P-Funk shows. He came and brought George the copies of the books and, and George was really happy to see him. It was really He's cool. A nice, nice guy. I like Dwayne. Great guy. And yeah. he is the one who introduced me to Roman and Littlefield. And so I gave Roman and Littlefield the pitch. They were more than excited about it. And within just like a week or so, they took on the project, thankfully to me. And, and you know, I was just talking to my uh, to the acquisitions editor on Zoom yesterday, and he was just saying, wow, Danny, it seems it was just, just a few months ago or whatever, just not that long ago that we were like, this was just a vision to maybe have this happen, and now it's happening. So uh, it's 30 years, and it's also just a few moments and it's everything in between, and it just shows you kind of the process of making it was very much like the history of this thing. So it was really, really wonderful. Wow.
And is the artwork uh, something you did? or? So the artwork is by Robert Iman, and he's the same guy who did uh, issue one of my Sons of the Sun comic book. Um, and he, uh, this guy, he did a lot of this kind of Armenian folklore mythology stuff. It was a, it was a pre-existing piece that he already had. And uh, the publishers and myself, we were going and looking through for different different art and different images. And we both kind of agreed we didn't want it to be photographic, even though that's cool. It had been done before. We wanted something kind of iconographic, something like an indicia that you could kind of uh, uh, sort of look at and be like, that's kind of... and uh, Tracy Lewis, Trey Lude, George's son, um, who I was just showing him the, what the cover looks like last night. He's like, oh, I like all that funkadelic around the borders. Yeah. You know, and it's like that. See, like even people who are very close to it can feel the, the authenticity of that. So it was a really cool, funky piece that already existed, and he was um, wonderful to allow us to use it for the cover of the book. And uh, so, yeah, so I have to thank Robert Iman. Great great artist from the netherlands who made that well i you know so many questions jump to mind but um i can't wait to look at it just to look at some of the you know obscurities that i know about and see some ones that i probably missed somewhere along the line no matter how tuned into it you are seems there's always some stone that wasn't turned over that you missed that somebody guessed it here or did this or that w were there uh one or two that jumped out at you uh yeah. that you were like wow i didn't know that and kind of just blew your mind in some kind of way yes um i'm gonna give away a couple because they were just so mind-blowing to me i was like what so um one that that really threw me was uh you know the song i bet you i bet you never lose my love funkadelic the funkadelic version it is it had always been canon that that's tiki fullwood on that but it's not Tiki Fullwood. It blew my mind. And George, the first day, that was one of the ones we couldn't remember the first name. He says, ah, uh, no, Smith. That's Smith. I'm like, Smith? He said, yeah, it's Smith on the drums. And then a couple days later, he remembered. He said, Danny, it's Andrew Smith. And I don't know if you know Andrew Smith, but Andrew Smith, let me see if I have, do I have that vinyl here? I have it around here somewhere. Andrew Smith is the guy who played drums along with Tiki on this record. Are you hip to this? Oh, yeah, I got that, yeah. Ruth Copeland, I Am What right. I Am, okay? Uh, or Self-Portrait, I'm sorry. And um, this album is split drums between Tiki and Andrew Smith. And Andrew Smith is the drummer on I Bet You. Had oh. no idea. Would have never guessed. No way of knowing. Yeah, I didn't know him by name, but I'm just calling it up right now. He was on a lot of good stuff. Temptations, Dennis yes. Coffee, a lot of the, uh, Undisputed Truth. I was going to say Undisputed Truth is one of the ones a lot of people know him from. And uh, and that was a, a revelatory thing. Um, additionally, a lot of that first Funkadelic album was revelatory because the mother page had a really succinct list of who it all was. And they had a lot of the names right, but they were just in the wrong place. So, like, Dennis Coffey, he does come up on that first Funkadelic album, but not where the mother page has him listed. So they got some of the names right, but the placement 
is kind of wrong. And then there are albums like Ray Manette, who was also listed on that first Funkadelic album. He actually contributed more on Osmium, but was never credited for it on things like, I think, Little Old Country Boy and one or two others. So, you know, this is stuff that really blew my mind where I was like, oh, wow, I never knew that that's, that's who that was. And then, like, the secret sort of heroes of this book in a lot of ways are Cordell Boogie Monsoon and Gary Mudbone Cooper because those two play more drums on Parliament Funkadelic Canon than probably all the drummers, as much as I love all those drummers. Boogie and Mudbone are all over this book on drums, all over. Bootsy's Rubber Band, Parlette the Brides, Parliament Funkadelic, and various solo projects. They're all over it. And um, that was, I mean, I knew that they played on a bunch of stuff on drums, but I think to the average P-Funk fan even, it'll be revelatory. Most people won't know the ones that they played on. And it's, I was like, really? And then, you know, I would have to have a second or third opinion. I, I, sometimes I just couldn't believe George. I was like, yeah. And then I'd ask a couple of the guys who were there from that session. They're like, yeah, no, that was Boogie or that was, that was Muddy or Mud, Mudbone himself. So yeah, that was me. I, I played on. Wow. You know, they're like, yeah, they're like the secret ingredient in this book. Um, as much as people know the, the majesty of the Clinton Collins Warrell combination and of course key people like Scheider Eddie Eddie Hazel but wow those two guys Masoon and Cooper all over the place all over oh. the place so it was it was really cool to see that unsung MVPs on the drums yeah big um, time yeah um was there any uh thing in there that um is like a super rare record collectible that you came across that you're like, you don't even know if it exists or maybe only a couple do or something like that. So I, tr I, I talk about it a little bit in the introduction, but I, I said at a certain point, I said, if it's so rare that it didn't reach mass production, I've pretty much left it out. Um, with some exceptions. However, I did include things that maybe didn't have an official soundtrack release. One good example is The Night Before. You remember that movie? Yeah. Yeah. I right. wish they released that. Right. Exactly. Baby Boy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many good things. There's even uh, Gary Scheider and Linda Scheider wrote a lot of the stuff that's kind of in the ballad. Like, there's this one scene where there's a ballad playing on a jukebox. It's not even when the band is playing. That's stuff that Gary and Linda wrote. And um, there's a lot of really cool stuff like that. Um so I included things like that, that, that was like, okay, if I don't include this, people are going to be calling me out for not including it because it's, it's P-Funk. It's P-Funk at a very specific time when there were no P-Funk albums too. So it's like the closest thing to a P-Funk album at that time is the night before because that's, what is that, 87? And yeah, that's, 86, 87, somewhere in there. It was, it was when, uh, around the time too when uh, Mutant Freaks came out originally and then Finally, it came out on that um, Funkonomicon. Axiom Funk, Funkonomicon, yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally, yeah. So stuff like that. And then, you know, I debated heavily over, over time, like, should I include Black Vampire? Do you know about Black Vampire? Not sure if I know that one. Okay, so, yeah, so I decided not to because it's so obscure. Makes me um, think of the original uh, Up for the Downstroke cover. Right. So Black Vampire 
to people, you can talk, there's probably like a very small handful of people who don't even know what it is, but it was supposed to, supposedly, supposed to be George's first solo album, but in like late 73. So in between Cosmic Slop and Up for the Downstroke. Now, it's got um, a version of Nothing Before Me But Thang. It's got an early version of Ride On, before, way before Chocolate City. It's got a song that's just George and Bernie, like a spooky vampire with like spooky Halloween music behind it. That's like sort of a title track. It's got one or two tracks that don't appear anywhere else. And I think it's got a version, another version of Whatever Makes Baby Feel Good, which did appear on Downstroke, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and one or two other things that I can't... Oh, and it's got a male vocal version of I Got a Thing for You. Instead of I Got a Thing for You, Daddy, I Got a Thing for You, Mommy, or Mama, or something. Which was, you know, a Ruth Copeland track, but it's like George's version. Because a lot of times he sang the tracks for the artists, you know, and so I think there might have been one of those type of things. So it, it's one of those ones I didn't include it because it's just too obscure. As far as we know, it never came out. But what's really funny about it, I recently was at uh, Books A Million and I was looking at a, a vinyl book, a book about like vinyl releases. And it comes up under, under P-Funk. George Clinton, Black Vampire. And it's got a... a, a, a you know, a, a call number, a, a whatever distribution number, or whatever. But as far as anybody knows, it didn't it, it didn't come out. And I know two people in the world that have like copies of it, but they don't have any. I don't think they have any artwork or indicia or anything. They're just kind of like not acetates, but they're just kind of weird, just not commercial releases. And I mentioned it to George one day recently. And was expecting a whole different answer from him, especially given his his knowledge and memory. And he said, yeah, that's just something an engineer put to one of the engineers just put that together. They tried to pass it as, as something and it wasn't. I said, really? I said, yeah, there's so many people be talking about this. Like it's like it's a real thing. Holy like, Grail or something. Yeah. yeah, Holy Grail. He's like, nah, some engineer tried to try to just collect a bunch of songs and try to called the black vampire. Cause that's when I was coming out of the coffins and stuff. They wanted to capitalize on that. I was like, Oh, okay. So things like that didn't make it in cause they weren't commercially released. Uh, additionally, I couldn't include bootlegs, but there is a nice live section at the end. Again, not including bootlegs, but it's a nice live release section at the end, which is alphabetical because it's like its own little section at the end of the book. And it's like, these are kind of the, the the primordial live releases from you the have camp. Like all, th all three versions of that one set that came out that varied for Japan and the US and UK. So what I did with those was I think I broke them up by where they were or whatever. So like Chicago 93 or uh, Hampton Coliseum 78. And I think I listed what releases they came from. But I don't think I separately listed the actual three versions. But I think I did it like that. And then, like, you know, there were so many cases where I had to submit edits, like, after the fact. <laughs> At one point, my uh, my acquisition editor was like, Danny, um, 
I see. I've noticed you've been uh, adding things to the. <laughs> I said, yeah, I forgot about a few things. He's like, do you know when you're going to be done with that? Because we really need to wrap this up. And I have to say, all the way up, Scott, all the way up to three weeks ago, I was still submitting edits. <laughs> all the way up to three weeks ago. And I've been done with the, the manuscript version of the book since uh, March, you know, May, something like that. And uh, three, up until three weeks ago, I was still submitting. Oh, wait, you know, uh, Joe Farrell actually played a solo on this thing. We got to add this. I remember very late forgetting about the Newberg sessions. I'd be like, oh, they'll kill me if I forget the Newberg sessions. I, I, lo I love that set. They'll kill me if I forget it. <laughs> so I threw that in on the on the live section. Um, but I said at the beginning, if I, if I included bootlegs and um, live live bootlegs and things, the book would be double the length that it is. So I have to cut it off in some places. So. Well what about like those live sets i have uh some here that for a while i think like maybe in oh four or maybe it was longer than that i want to say around there they were doing those things where they were releasing uh recordings of live shows through some company was doing them they had like a uh, uh, gray cardboard kind of cover or cardboard they're, kind of covers they're in there yeah okay yeah they're in there what were those uh, called i can't remember instant live instant live but there was uh, there was actually two different versions, though. Uh, well, Instant Live did two. Then there was another company that did one. I can't remember what they called it, but it's in there as well. Because um, Clear Channel did the Instant Live ones in 04, 03, 04. I then, guess you're right. Yep. And then another company did some in like 04, 05. And those are some really interesting sets, too. There was one from, it was like Bernie's last show with us. It was Long Beach at the Vault in 05, the end of 05, and this massively long show we played at a place called Zofest, which I think you and me might have even talked about. It's the longest show I ever played with George. It was seven hours and 45 minutes. And I'll never forget when the people came to his uh, the back lounge of the bus, and they were telling him everything that he was going to play you're going to play this. You're going to do this. We want, we need you. You're going to have to do this. You have to do this. And they walked out. He, he just said something like <laughs> something I can't say right now. And we went on to play seven hours and 45 minutes, no breaks, no stops. And he knowing that they were going to have to edit. And this was his way of getting out of uh, whatever the hell it was they wanted him to do. Because we're going to do so much stuff that there's going to be no way you're going to be able to record all of this and put it out. Because they were trying to release like single disc, because a single or a double disc thing, you know? Yeah, two CDs. Yeah. Yeah. So it was funny. Danny, who, who did you come across that you would say has the most, um, uh, you know, the largest collection, personal collection? Oh, man. Like of like everything, including like... Um, bootlegs and all kinds of crazy stuff yeah some uh, maybe was there one or two people you're just like wow this yeah guy has everything so these guys some of these guys i talked to for the book only the ones who were members of the band um but i mentioned most of them in the introduction just in special thanks for their for their fandom and their their um there's a few guys uh gabe gonzalez number one chuck haber um somebody a lot of people don't know jafumi Ui. 
who was this if if she had lived um if she had lived long enough uh she would have written this book probably and she did write a great book um in japan about pifong uh, around around the same time, or maybe a, a touch before yours came out, um, uh, Glenn Grau, um, who am I forgetting? Who am I forgetting? Oh, Arno Konings in the Netherlands, the the twins, as George called them, the Konings brothers, Edwin and, and Arno. Those those five or six are probably the guys with the. But I've got a pretty. Each one of those people, myself included, have things that the other one doesn't have. And those are the things that, are, like, most of those things aren't in the book. Because they're just like... I, I had uh, Dwayne Dungey, who was the uh, front of the house engineer for Parliament Funkadelic from 03 to, four, 03 to 16. A very long tenure, especially for a sound man. Uh, he and I, at one point, we're, we're putting together an what well, we wanted to be an album. We, we had a whole proposal for George at the time, his early Sea Conspiracy era, and we were calling it Sound Checks and Outtakes. And we had compiled thousands of hours of sound checks and rehearsals. And so I have a lot of that stuff that was just compiled from DATs, sitting and listening to the DAT like for hours transferring it to digital transferring it to cd picking out the best things and a lot of that stuff is incredible because it's never been heard it's never even been thought of like bernie and me and a couple other people uh putting putting together a new arrangement or a new song and like the whole process you can hear us talking about it, writing down the notation or um we did a series of 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 um rehearsals for the greek theater when How Late Do You Have to Be Before Your Absent came out. And George had this grandiose idea of us learning the whole album. So we learned the whole album. Bootsy was there and everybody. And, you know, that's one of those two discs. It's two discs, I think. And um, the two discs. Yeah, we learned every damn song on that album, even though we didn't play them, but we played a lot of them. And um, that we, we, I called a lot from that because it's, there's one song called Saddest Day that Belita used to sing. And I have the primeval, the ultimate version of that with Gary, Steve Boyd, Kendra, Ron Cat, Paul Hill, Greg Thomas singing backup vocals. And um, Jerome Rogers and Boog and Trelude doing the doing the piano and guitar accompaniment. It is the most beautiful thing ever just so gorgeous and um all the way down to process though you can hear us like eating chicken and talking about you hear like you're kendra's like save me a piece of chicken y'all they up there rehearsing and then you hear a clip like you let let the lyrics dictate dictate the melody and then it come in <laughs> like this song come in. it was like a really gorgeous package stuff like that that a lot of folks have the, the guys i named they just have great there's another set of Newberg tapes that never came out from the nineties when they were getting ready for the uh, central park show. So that people have copies of where the band's doing like ride on with the brides and, but from the, in the nineties, you know um, yeah, there's crazy, crazy amounts of stuff. Gabe 
wows me every time I see him. He's like, you ever heard the full version of anything? You name it. I'll be like, no, what? And then he'll play it for me and be like, oh, my God. Um, so I thank all of those guys in the introduction for their the archivists. Yeah, yeah, their massive archiving. And I include other guys like Tim Kinley and people who frequented the One Nation boardroom. Because that's where I kind of got my start with like nerdy P-Funk endeavors. That One Nation boardroom that was put together by Melissa Weber back in the early 90s. And there's certain ones of us that were just purveyors of that of that room, of that chat board, that have gone on and have maintained friendships in fandom of the P-Funk through all the decades. So it's pretty cool. Really cool. Um, so, Danny, tell everyone where they can get it and when they can get it. Yes. So the book officially comes out November 15th. You can go to the publisher's website. It's Roman and Littlefield, R-O-W-M-A-N and Littlefield. Um, their website is the, if you want to help me the most, it helps me the most by getting it directly from them. But of course you can order it from Barnes and Noble, Books A Million, Amazon, all of those places, wherever books are sold, both uh, physical and digital. And uh, starting November 15th, it'll be available in brick and mortar and online to be bought. But you can buy, you can pre-order it right now. So, uh, and make sure I'm, I think I make sure I'm saying all that right. The, uh, yeah, the, uh, to, e to email for your copy, you can go to uh, orders at Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N dot com. Or you can just go to www.roman.com. Um and you can order directly from Roman and Littlefield or any wholesaler. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, 504 pages and officially comes out November 15th. Over yeah. 10,000 titles. And we're going to make a great holiday gift, too. You know, just yes. a month later. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I like that you have Daniel on there. So you're the official yeah. author. Yeah, my real, my real name. You know, I had to use my real... Uh, my real name this time. I felt that was appropriate. Yeah, it's, you're serious. No doubt. Yep. yep. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, I wish you all the luck with that. I know you're going to do great. Um, you know, uh, definitely. Uh, I can't imagine any fan that's going to be without it. So. Oh, thank you, Scott. Yeah, the, the publishers are happy with even with the pre-orders already. And I think it's just going to go up, up, up from the publication date. And I'm just super psyched about it. Just so happy to see it reach fruition. You know, Patavian says to me every day, whenever there's like a new thing happen, I'm like, oh, I got a little, we got bookmarks that have the book on it. Or we have, I'm always at least seemingly to her, not excited about it. She's like, when are you going to get excited? <laughs> when are you going to be excited about this? Because I'm always like, yeah, they uh, they accepted the book at da -ba -da -ba -da. They got me going to this book fair. That's amazing. Are you happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's like, I don't get it. When will you be happy? And then finally one day I told her, I think, I think I'm going to be excited when I, I think I'm going to be giddy when I actually hold it in my hands. Or or, or actually see it in a bookstore. Yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. Definitely. Yeah. yeah I feel like it's the other shoe dropping in a way because Don's book was like amazing and amazing. Uh, a year ago. And, and that was so big and voluminous and all the photos and things like that. And now yours is so epic too. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's funny because Don was one of the one of the key interviews that I did during uh, during the the creation of this book, and she was just wrapping getting hers 
done around the same time. So we were comparing notes and talking, and it was just so great to see such a great um, biopic, autobiographical work uh, come out and reach fruition, um, which, again, like you said, it doesn't always happen, but that's that Capricorn power, baby. Me and Don both Capricorn, so... I, I chalk it up to that. <laughs> oh, I'm like one or two days after Capricorn. Oh, nice. Okay, Aquarius. Yeah, they've told me I'm on the cusp, so I'm okay. a touch of Capricorn. <laughs> uh, before I let you go, um, gotta ask you: uh, Do you see any new uh, P Funk music coming out soon? Because I thought, you know, during the pandemic, I know uh, there was talk of that follow-up to uh, Fraud Dog was going to be like another. I think it was another like medical themed. Yeah. Uh, thing or something and um like during the pandemic it's got to come out what a great time to do it um so i'm just wondering um i'm not the best person to ask but i would get i would wager a bet that yes there will be another um it's supposed to be p-funk all-stars and you're right about that that medical theme and some of my favorite stuff from those sessions but he also has um like a like a for lack of a better word, like a maxi single almost, or it's like four or five songs. He has a couple of those that he's planned. Um, one of them is like some new P-Funk All-Stars stuff. And another one is like almost like a continuation of Gangsters of Love, except in more of a Shake the Gate vibe. So it's like covers, but things that like... Um, like Bernadette, you... Bernadette was on that one. Yeah, it was. That's right. And um, uh, uh, this is like some covers of some things that we've been doing live lately. So like Give It Away by the Chili Peppers or Jump Around by House of Pain. Like new P-Funk All-Stars versions of those, but completely revamped by the band, you know, with the live band playing. He's got some kind of plans, uh, I think, of putting that kind of stuff out. And then, I mean, we've done a ton of stuff with Mono Neon. Mono's here right now. He was just, I was just down there at the studio last night, and they're recording some new stuff. And he did a huge amount of stuff with us this year. Um, so chances are a good portion of the best of that stuff is going to reach fruition and come out. Um, just because I think it's, too in demand not to you know and george is just constantly moving and working you know i was mm -hmm. just there with him i just cut two things here at the studio for him today that we didn't get around to last night at the studio and he was just there doing his thing conducting running the room all right so so you get in there okay now you like he's still just way on top of everything you know he got mono laying the bass tracy singing the vocals for him getting the guitar okay he got Went over there playing the trumpet. Okay, Danny, take these tracks home. Okay, Ricky's going to send you the tracks. You're going to play the keys on this. I need you to do this kind of sustain and this kind of... Like, he's so all the way on it. All the way on it and in it as the producer. Um, still, to concurrently, the present day today, <laughs> literally today, I just sent him two tracks on the phone. All right, here's the, here's the rough mix downs of so-and-so and this, that. So much like Miles Davis, we don't really know what he's going to put out until he does. Miles was like that too. And I've, I've kind of compared them in that way before. Um, he puts these packages together. He tells us a little bit about it. We find out it like he sort of fishes around on it and then like 
and then it drops and then it's like oh oh wow you know <laughs> another well, pr thing prince totally that way too yeah. yeah prince totally that way and another thing he's been doing lately is making new versions of like his entire catalog so he's 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 done remakes of everything for i guess licensing purposes and some really beautiful renditions and again not uh not uber ultra modern either they're they're very um very i don't want to say like uh yeah they're 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 very sort of respecting the original in a way where it's like all live live band stuff guitars and live drums and bass and keyboards and horns and stuff so i mean all the way from like the early funkadelic stuff and so even some of the parliaments stuff going all the way through the catalog he's re like redoing a lot of these songs with some of his newer people like uche who was um a song competition winner the voice i believe um and uh, uh or finalist i should say and and he got him doing like a really nice version of soulmate and and a, a bunch of different songs i can go on and on like i the great version of free your mind your ass will follow that he did a great rendition and um yeah with with you know the parliament funkadelic people you know so uh keeping in keeping in line with that you know with with that movement and 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 all of that music and so yeah he's moving too fast for me to say what's going to come up <laughs> i think uh you know it's high time to just start releasing some stuff uh digitally online you know i mean yeah the appetite is there um and it's not very costly to do that so right yep these days it's definitely yeah. I've been getting in his ear about Patreon lately, and I think he's interested in doing that kind of thing because it is like a new way to market to your fan base digitally and and to actually make money on it because for the longest time, all the way up to right now, we're not really making money off this digital. And it's what, you know, with, with, with a P-Funk fan base, for instance, you know, 60 to 70% maybe of the fan base is getting it digitally through Spotify or YouTube with a, a more contemporaneous, you know, like modern, modern hip hop, postmodern hip hop or something. It's probably like 99%, you know, and they're making no money on this stuff. So something like Patreon, you charge what you want to charge and actually make the money that you would make on physical, but on digital and you purvey it towards the audience that wants it and make it exclusive to them makes it more worthwhile to them and you. So I think those are one of, you know, those type of things I think will be the well, does, avenue. Does, does Bandcamp pay favorably also? Bandcamp, uh, you, yeah, you, you choose the rate, but it's not structured in a, um, in a, uh, a monthly, like Patreon's a subscription. So you're able to choose the output, choose the creative uh output what goes where when you send what you can you could have an album that maybe didn't do so well six years ago and suddenly it's successful because you're able to market it towards these groups on your patreon that's recurring revenue versus yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. and and you know i don't even have a huge patreon or anything i mean some of these guys on youtube who have like major major podcasts pop, pop culture podcasts or whatever 
they've got a gazillion. I mean, they must be making goo gobs of money because mm-hmm. I just have my little cross section of people and it's paying a couple bills, you know? So I can't even imagine, you know, the people who are like, join my patron. Here's thank you to my patrons. And it's just like <laughs> a million names just like scrolling like, Oh my God, that must be crazy. You know, they're, that's their whole income right there. So I think that's, I mean, just personally, I can't speak for George. He's definitely into it all the times we've talked about it. But in my opinion, that's the wave of the future for creatives until your Spotify's and YouTube's and so on find a more lucrative way for the creatives to earn. But for them, that doesn't, it doesn't help their bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, What's the motivation for them? So again, I think for now in the near necessary future, that's, that's the way to go. Yeah. All right. Hey, well, um, and do you have any projects uh, down the line here if we're looking toward yeah. the end of the year, early? Uh, well, work? right now, there's still the Sons of the Sun trade paperback. It's 106 pages uh, detailing the first three issues of my comic, full color, glossy, nice, thick paper, beautiful, spared no expense on the production value. It's been selling really well on the P-Funk tours. People can get this right now. Uh, can I advertise how they can get it? Sure. Yeah. So it's just, uh, it's 50, $50. They can send to my PayPal at info at dannybedrosian.com or cash app is dollar sign Daniel Bedrosian or Venmo is at Daniel Bedrosian. And also the newest, uh, secret army album. It's a live album, lost froth Two, the sort of companion to the first Lost Froth album that came out in 2012. Same artwork, but uh, without the colors. Yep, yeah. exactly. Yep. And uh, and it also has some unreleased, unseen artwork uh, inside, too, from Sleaziest to the Grease and some other stuff that was never used. Some process stuff. Um, but this contains a lot of really great, some unreleased studio stuff, but mostly some great recent live stuff. Myself, Lige, Benzel, Blackbird McKnight, Greg Thomas a bunch of other guys um, from on the road from like the last, like from right before COVID up to now. Um, and this is uh 20 bucks uh, to the same places. Um, and I am, I'm always working on new stuff. I have uh, an album I've been producing on Batavian uh, that we've been working on for a while that should be coming out probably sometime next year, uh, probably spring of next year. And then I am doing a reissue series of my older albums on vinyl coming up next year as well. Uh, I've been doing a long, long process of market research on what to put out and how to do it. And if I should include the whole thing, because, you know, again, CDs are much longer than vinyl. So you have to find a way to either double or triple up these vinyls or cut, you know, and edit. So I think I've sort of figured out what the first few are going to be, and at least the first one's going to come out next year. And then also next year, um, my original funk band that I had back in New England, back in the day, Sweet Mother Child, that was around for about six years, we're getting back together, and we've already started working. Uh, About nine of us already are on it, and we're trying to get even more people. Because it was 18-piece. It was a ton of people. Um, We're putting out first album in t- over 20 years and wow. uh so that'll be coming out next year as well what genres are in that it's it's funk it's it's you know p-funk derived uh 
it was it was my band when I was trying to be like George and Sly back in the day, you know. And so a lot of these guys stayed in the music business. A lot of them have worked on my Secret Army and other spinoff groups over the years and have been key writers and contributors. And now we're finally do, doing the, the old band again, just for fun, just mm-hmm. to do it. So we're going to put that out. I think we're calling it Seven, which is like the seventh album. So, ah, Nice. Uh, and do you still have that website or... DannyPedrosian.com is is currently down, so we're not using it anymore, but you can go to patreon.com slash dannypedrosian, and there's all kinds of good stuff on there. And, of course, you can follow me on my Instagram, I, my two Facebook pages, and my Twitter, and get all kinds of stuff there. However, um, a lot of the information that people have clamored for that was on that original website, I do still have archived. So people who want to hit me up and get some of that discographical um, administrative and and sort of biographical information are more than welcome to get it from me via my Patreon or via from uh, my uh, social media. Are you doing any book signings? Yes. Um, Thank you for asking that. Uh, The day it comes out, much like the debut of The Mothership in New Orleans, we are starting... The, the book release November 15th um, with the New Orleans Book Fair. And uh, Melissa Weber, who's actually the person who I credit as, as being the person who got me in with George, is going to be doing a live interview with me at the book fair, live in front of an audience um, with the signing of the book. And I am continuing on with um, an honorarium at the University of New Hampshire, my alma mater, uh, from November 26th to 28th. That's going to include a lecture series, some workshops for the music students, and then a concert at the end at UNH on the 28th, featuring myself, Lige, Benzel, Kevin Oliver, and George Clinton, um, doing a one song from every decade of the eight decades of P-Funk. It's going to be a really cool curated concert. And then we're moving on with a Secret Army tour that's going to promote the book right after that, uh, where we'll be uh, November 29th in, at the Portland Music Hall in Portland, Maine. Um, November 30th, uh, TBA, New York City. November, uh, December 1st, TBA, Boston. And December 2nd at the Feathered Friend Brewing in Concord, New Hampshire. And then at all the P-Funk shows starting November 24th, George is going to have special editions of the books signed by him uh, available at the merch table. And um, moving on into the new year, we're do- I'm doing a ton of book fairs going through the new year, including probably the biggest one I'm doing is right here in Tallahassee, the Word of South Festival, April 27th, which is going to feature a special concert with the same people I mentioned, uh, Secret Army guys, plus Kevin Oliver and George, doing a special curated set list of of P-Funk throughout the, throughout the decades. And so. Wow. You've remembered all that. I'm impressed. <laughs> and there's other stuff too, that I'm not remembering, but there's going to be some more honorariums with uh, various other schools, FSU, FAM. We're talking to Berkeley, UF, bunch of other schools. So there's going to be more stuff with the colleges as well, coming up through the new year. And there'll be more book fairs in various places from Virginia to Vermont, to Texas, to California, Oak, uh, Oregon and, 
on and on. So there's going to be a, a bunch of appearances. Well, hopefully you'll get some good uh, write-ups and reviews too in some of the media. Yeah. Yeah. We've done, I've sent out a bunch of op-eds to some major publications and, uh, and also just doing as many, as many interviews. And, and I've done basically an interview a day for the past week or so. And that's that, that pace is just going to keep up as we go on. So, but, but to this is, but this is the best one. It's definitely going to be the most in depth, Scott. That's for okay. sure. By far the most in depth. Good, good. That's yep. what I aim for. So, yep, absolutely. And my purpose, too, as you know, is preserving those legacies, you know. So, uh, so on board with that, uh, that uh, purpose, you know. Yeah. Thank you for that. No, it's, yeah. it, it shows. It definitely shows. Hey, Danny, man, so much fun catching up. And uh, what a great uh, reason to do it, you know. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for this platform, for this amazing uh, show that you have. And thank you for showing the world and giving the world all this knowledge with all these amazing people and your amazing knowledge. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkinstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book, at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkinstuff.net, and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg.funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Wolfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.